Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Narco-Terrorism in South Asia. I would like to welcome all of you um, to panel session 11A um, of this 24-hour conference. Um, yeah, I want to thank the organisers very much for inviting all of us. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm going to be the um, panel moderator today on the panel talk on narco-terrorism in South Asia. Uh, with me are um, Celine Borko and Lisa Dudek, uh, both of whom work with me as research analysts at the European Foundation for South Asian Studies, um, a think tank that's based in Amsterdam. And uh, after this, we do a variety of uh, different work on different topics, including the Kashmir conflict, uh, relations between India and Pakistan, uh, China's growing role in the region, as well as organized crime in the region. And um, in the context of the uh, EU-funded project, we've uh, recently done quite a lot of work on um, yeah, the connection between criminal activities and criminal organizations in South Asia and Southeast Asia, especially, um, and terrorist activities and terrorist groups in South Asia. <clears throat> We were initially meant to have uh, three speakers here today. Unfortunately, one of them has fallen ill, so um, Anne is not going to be able to join us. But um, Celine and Lisa are still going to talk and um, are going to have very interesting converse, um, presentations uh, on the topic. Celine's going to talk about um, the drug economy in Myanmar, and uh, Lisa is going to start with uh, talking about um, narco-terrorism and the methamphetamine industry in Afghanistan. And um, yeah, without further ado, I'd like to give the floor to Lisa. Um, the um, panel sessions, as you all know, are 10 minutes. So I'm going to have to kind of cut people off afterwards. Um, if you have any questions to the speakers, please ask them in the Q&A and uh, we'll make sure to discuss them afterwards. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And Lisa, please go ahead. Okay, well, um, good morning, um, good afternoon and good evening from my side here. It is 5 a.m. in the Netherlands. Um, I'm Lisa, and as Aaron already said, I work at EFSAS. Um, so thank you for joining me and thank you for joining us. I find it a really great pleasure to present you my findings of the research that I conducted in our paper series on the linkage of terrorism and the illicit drugs industry in South Asia. And my research, though, was already assigned to me before the developments in Afghanistan, that receives international attention uh, seems to be a very timely and important issue. So I hope that with this presentation, where I show and explain some of my findings, um, it'll shed some light on the actualities and the perceptions that are widely regarded as correct uh, in public media outlets. Um, my research focused foremost on the opium and methamphetamine industry in Afghanistan, why it continues to flourish and what role different actors play in it, um, particularly focused on the methamphetamine industry which only receives marginal, though growing, attention uh, by research and by news, and it really poses to be a growing industry. Um, I'm going to skip my table of contents and we'll move right to the internal drivers, uh, which I believe is a very important issue to have a look at before actually attempting to fully um, explain the drug industry in Afghanistan. So while the illicit industry receives an abundance of attention, uh, during my research, I concluded that instead of trying to completely stop it, as policies uh, over time have done time and time again, we need to focus more attention on the structural internal drivers for civilian engagement 
So for instance, uh, the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Addiction indicates that synthetic drugs contribute up to 46 um, 0.8 million euros to local wages per year. Um, and while engaging in the industry does provide for some financial stability, it creates dependency and often results in debt traps to those uh, who are farmers uh, or processors um, and who need to give that product to someone else. Um, David Mansfield, who I would say is really the leading expert on illicit drugs in Afghanistan, uh, just recently said in a podcast, which I have in my uh, sources at the end if you want to have a look at it um, that what also needs to be factored in is the rural actualities and the family network intricacies and connectedness and often really the lacking knowledge of consequences of engagement in the industry and um, political fluctuations and the vulnerability of rural communities to engage with the industry also factors in because it does well provide for a more or less stable flow of income um, and especially currently during the disastrous, really, economic situation uh, where many civilians are forced to engage with other means uh, to be able to survive. This means that there's an increase in engagement with the illicit drugs industry, as the Wall Street Journal uh, indicated recently as well. Um, the natural landscape, which is something I'll discuss in a bit, is also a really important factor um, because it really allows for such a large scale of production. Um, yes, and then I think this is also... Uh, vital to actually to grasp say the different industries that you have an idea um how it is built up so as you can see here the heroin industry is estimated to be of a much larger size uh with an approximate workforce of 500,000 full-time people um with a production of 6,000 tons annually and and as most people um i assume know that is it, it does originate from opium poppies um prices have been fluctuating and it really is frankly, quite difficult to estimate, uh, especially um, because of the, the political situation and because, oh, sorry for that. Um, and because, um, for example, the season, which is in November, December, um, in September, it was very, the prices were very high because it was unclear if there would be a season or not. And it seems that there is. Um, so the prices have have gone to a more uh, mellowed situation, but well, it really is difficult to estimate them. Uh, so for methamphetamine in Afghanistan, there's an estimation of 20,000 people working in it. And while 786 tons annually might seem lower, it still is quite a lot. And the price per kilo um, is estimated to be approximately $280, which in comparison to, for example, Myanmar of more than $3,000 is a very competitive price and the part that I believe is very important um, is the uses, uh, usage of the ephedra plant in the process, uh, which, which researchers also have conducted field work on in parts of Afghanistan and have seen this as to be the primary reason for a shift. Um, so why the shift? Well, ephedra occurs naturally in Afghanistan's mountainous regions and thus has the advantage that no cultivation is necessary and the cost of finding and harvesting it um, from its natural occurring places is marginal. The easy processing to ephedrine um, through household processing methods allows for low input prices and gives greater competitiveness on the market, um, especially compared to, to other uh, type substances. Um, and because of the natural occurrence, no import of those substances is needed um, and the household processing uh, goes largely unnoticed and unmapped as well. Um, and it receives little attention internationally, especially compared to the um, opium economy in Afghanistan, which people really do connect with Afghanistan almost automatically. Um, 
why we know that it has increased so drastically is for for multiple reasons. Um, seizures at the borders of Afghanistan and within the Golden Crescent have have increased really irritably much. Um, and the UNODC's monitoring also has identified methamphetamine uh, as a growing industry over the past years and in its recent reports. Um, yes, so while having explained the research necessary to understand the industry itself, uh, such a large unregulated industry over decades requires some sort of structure and oversight to continue to function. Um, however, there is a great gap between export experts, researchers, and the media as to how much and where the nexus between processing and the production of illicit drugs and financial streams to actors involved uh, really is. So um, I produced a, a table that um, has potential methods in it um, as to how actors might generate revenue through the economy. Um, so these are not all ways how actors do generate revenue. These are all potential methods that have been indicated in other researchers or that uh, field work has concluded uh, from researchers. So the first one, which is, I would say, the most present in public media as well, is Usher, which is an Islamic tax of 10% of harvests on cult cultivated land. Um, so it includes opium, opium poppy cultivation. Um, Smith and Mansfield expressed this to be widely exaggerated and wrong, continuously to be said that it is the main source of revenue stream. Um, and say if this tax is paid, it often does not uh, go to the intended targets of poor civilians, which is, is what the tax is for, but it really goes to the local Taliban commanders. Um, but what, what research indicates um, from Smith and Mansfield, for instance, is that taxation per volume um, explains a lot more rather than usher, uh, which is a tax based on volume, which makes sense, um, a fixed price for a specific weight or quantity. And these taxes are said to be merely around 1%. Um, so it does not actually, the profit margin there is a lot lower. Um, shopkeepers and business owners taxes, as explained by Gretchen Peters, is also really a uh, predominant expert in this industry, uh, is a tax of 10% imposed uh, on the owners and on passing through trucks and is only present in very specific regions. Um, transportation costs, then meaning payment through trafficking and transport is often said to be a source of revenue. And while a per kilo tax um, is very low at uh, $0.07 per kilo, it does add up to large sums when transported. Uh, protection money for traffickers is necessary to ensure secure transport and is often provided by insurgencies and other actors. Um, and as Mansfield's indi Mansfield indicates, the previously mentioned taxes are often given in forms of charities or gifts um, on a very much more irregular basis, and they're then directly paid to the local commanders. Often these are also on seasonal basis. Um, yeah, and then one thing that we've seen recently more as well is because of the uh, recent Taliban takeover, the aerial control has increased hugely and uh, it gives for a more direct involvement and possibility for payment transfers. Yes, so all in all, uh, to conclude my findings, taxation and protection payments are of importance for the revenue stream for the Taliban and for other actors um, who engage with it and have enabled for a continuous inflow of financial means over the last two decades, which not the least has contributed to the ability of the Taliban uprising in August, 2021. Um, an increased 
increasing methamphetamine industry with little international attention and lower prices compared to other markets as well, provides for a new niche of illicit drug production in Afghanistan, a competitive advantage on the market and easy household processing methods uh, for the production process. And additionally, I would like to give a couple of pointers along the way, which um, one my research tried to uncover, but which I also believe to be uh, important to keep in mind um, when looking at the drugs industry. So first, the media regarding the illicit industry is widely exaggerating and utilizing the drugs issue to make it a hot topic. Um, and we, we need to keep in mind the humanitarian side of it as well, as I explained in the beginning of my presentation. Second, uh, the data regarding the industry is very difficult to find and to research in the country as well. And if so, it really only presents a province or a community and thus it can't be really be transferred onto Afghanistan as a whole. Um, and then finally, and this is something I really think needs to be reiterated, is that the structural factors for involvement in the industry by civilians is often not a very opportunistic behavior, but uh, or for large profit margins. Um, rather, it's really a method of last resort and doesn't bring civilians or individuals large benefits, but helps for survival and then results in dependency on the industry and entanglement within it. Uh, so trying to fully eliminate the drugs industry in Afghanistan, as it has been attempted before, does not benefit the people of Afghanistan. Rather, it would be important to establish criminalization for those who exploit and prey on the weak links of society. And this, um, for more obvious reasons, is is very difficult to achieve currently. Um, yes, so thank you for listening to my research findings and do please let me know if you have any questions or if I can specify on something further and um, I'd also be in interested and happy to hear other perspectives on the topic. Thank you so much, Lisa. A very interesting talk, a very interesting focus on sort of the local complexities. Um, I think it's also interesting to think about um, the fact that you know, we think about drug production in Afghanistan as kind of a national issues, although the actual issue might be more geographically concentrated in particular areas. Um, and uh, also, as you indicate, that the connection to the Taliban might not actually be as obvious and as direct as perhaps is commonly assumed in the production process. Um, I think that's a pretty good pathway, um, especially the economic angle and this humanitarian angle that you take um, to the presentation of Selim who's going to speak specifically about the drug economy and the history of opium and methamphetamine trade in um, Myanmar today. So um, with that, I'd just like to give it to Selene. Yes, thank you, Erin. And thank you, Lisa, for this very interesting presentation. Uh, hello, everyone. And thanks to everyone who made this session possible. I'm very happy to talk to you about ethnic insurgencies and the drug economy in Myanmar. So my angle is a bit different from Lisa's perspective because I looked at Myanmar as a linkage between the South Asian region and the Southeast Asian region where we, however, can see somehow similar trends in drug supply. So my research focused on the nexus between organized drug crime and conflict in Myanmar, especially in light of the most recent uh, military coup in February 2021, so now 10 months ago. Uh, but before we look at the current situation, we of course have to look at the origins of the drug situation in Myanmar. So Myanmar can be seen as the central element of the Golden Triangle, 
and is formed by the borderlands uh, between Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar, and has this mythical reputation as a drug hub. And just like the Golden Crescent in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Myanmar also borders China, India, and Bangladesh, which makes it a very, very interesting geopolitical location. Like I said, linking the South and Southeast Asian region. Uh, and if we look at the, the roots of the current drug situation in Myanmar and the Golden Triangle more broadly, we of course have to look at some key geopolitical events and I will try to be quite short here. Uh, so the first one is of course colonialism and opium. Myanmar, which was called Burma until 1989 when the military renamed the country, uh, became part of the British Raj and thereby also a pawn of big powers that were fighting for economic gains that could be made with opium. After World War II, when a more global unified approach to opium regulation that was translating to eradication basically was taken, Burma found itself in a very difficult position because especially the semi-autonomous states like Shan state were before more or less accepted to produce opium also due to a lack of viable economic alternatives. Uh, additionally, a second event that I want to mention is the communist takeover in China in 1949 that led to an influx of refugees into Burma's mountainous areas where Chinese nationalists organized against China with US intelligence support and became heavily involved in the opium trade while also supporting the buildup of the Shan United Army under the infamous Khunsan. And one last point that I want to mention here is the term ceasefire capitalism uh, coined by Kevin Woods, which I think is a really great term to describe how the ceasefire agreements between the military that first took power in 1962 and ethnic insurgent groups made in the 1990s led to a decrease in violence because they de facto permitted or accepted insurgent groups to trade illicit drugs. So the military was heavily implicated in the trade because of their methods like informal taxation of traffickers and sometimes of opium farmers directly. All of these circumstances make it a very important strategic location for the trafficking of different illicit goods. Uh, take to it Myanmar's mountainous areas and the variety of ethnic groups in conflict for land and independence, and you have an ideal hub for the production and trafficking of narcotics. So what this has amounted to is the world's longest civil war, uh, which requires, of course, a lot of money that has often come from drug profits. Rather than crime terror nexus, we can refer to the situation in Myanmar as a nexus between crime and conflict. That is because the groups tend to be more localized actors with national goals rather than what is typically understood as a terrorist organization with overarching ideological, re religious or political goals. Uh, secondly, on the basis of the crime terror nexus, it is often argued that the specific goals of the respective groups are altered by means of the economic gains that are made from organized crime. However, in the case of Myanmar, organized crime must also be seen as a purely instrumental strategy to sustain the fight of all conflicting actors, including the military. 
So an example for that is the United War State Army that is operating in Shan State and that has entered a ceasefire agreement in 1989. Uh, a very interesting article by Johnson, Brennan and O'Hara points out that the ceasefire agreements present a clear-cut example of the bribing for peace mechanism with a permissive drug policy used to buy off a rebel group unwilling to relinquish its involvement in the trade. So what this shows is that the involvement in drug trade cannot be seen as the only explanatory factor for the continuation of civil war. What I've been hinting at is that poorly designed opium policies and a dysfunctional state framework have offered opportunities for different groups and thereby created insecurities for opium farmers, uh, for many of whom opium remains the only cash crop available to feed their families. Uh, also, it is known that penalization-led policies against drugs in the whole of Southeast Asia have dis disproportionately impacted women in the region. So this is also an issue with a gendered um, impact and gendered implications. The global opium eradication efforts were followed by a rise in amphetamine type stimulants, short ATS like methamphetamine. Uh, this is a trend that started in the 1990s and has been described as displacement in which the global fight against opium has led to a rise of an arguably more dangerous substitute um, that is attractive, for example, due to its unlimited production cycles and higher profit margins that can be made with methamphetamine. Uh, I, however, think it's crucial to mention that according to UNODC data from 2017, one in 10 households in Shan State is or was in 2017 still directly involved in the cultivation of opium poppy, which shows that despite the decrease, opium is still quite prevalent, at least in some parts of Myanmar. So these circumstances lead us to the situation today. Uh, where Myanmar has really become a global methamphetamine hub with precursor chemicals coming amongst others from factories in China, also due to a lack of a regional control strategy. And while as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the tourism sector broke down, the drug economy has proven highly resilient and adaptable, for example, by using cryptocurrencies as payment method. Uh, paired with that are, of course, weak national drug enforcement capacities after the coup, uh, which has resulted in rising drug seizures that indicate that ATS in the region is indeed booming. This has manifested in the largest Southeast Asian drug bust that was made only very recently in October 2021, where 1.5 tons of methamphetamine and more than 55 million methamphetamine tablets were seized by the Lao border police, indicating that there's indeed a spike in production. Uh, and this can and, of course, will have global as well as regional consequences. So to draw some conclusions from my short presentation, we have a highly globalized illicit economy that implicates Myanmar's militaries, the state and non-state actors, in a complex web of relations, especially with the neighboring countries for which Myanmar supplies synthetic drugs. Uh, we further see that the boom in ATS production and trafficking was at least to some extent enabled by selective drug eradication policies, 
which also shows that drugs are operated in the framework that a state is able to provide, making the situation a result of state dysfunction rather than absence. And the last point that I want to make is that as a result of this, the people in Myanmar are caught between state authorities and armed groups that use similar strategies and even partially converge. Uh, so civilians bear the burden of conflict and human rights violations. Uh, and therefore there's a need to support initiatives that are human-centered rather than fighting substances that are produced and consumed by people in different socioeconomic contexts. Thank you for listening to my presentation. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Thank you very much, Celine. Uh, very interesting conclusions there, I think, especially in regards to um, the idea that this is a kind of a direct outcome of the way the state in Myanmar functions rather than kind of the result of a incapacity or an unwillingness to deal with it. Um, kind of the, yeah, the notion that this is by design basically an inevitable outcome of the way Myanmar works as a country. Um, I also think uh, that the legacy of colonialism here was maybe more pronounced uh, than it is perhaps in Afghanistan with, you know, different autonomous states kind of competing with one another. Um, at the same time, I think um, also very interesting overlaps with uh, Lisa's presentations in terms of significance for the, um, for the local economy, for local households and uh, for the local participation. So, um, yeah, thank you both very much for two very interesting um, presentations. We already have uh, a couple of questions, so I'm just going to go right to that. Um, the first question is, um, in the case of Afghanistan, what are your findings on addiction in and beyond the country? I suppose that goes to Lisa. That seems so. right. That, that is uh, for me. Yes, so um, I, I did find uh, quite a lot on addiction as well, because, well, that seems natural, I would say, if you research on uh, illicit drugs um, and really something that that shocked me and that uh, research of case studies also shows is that um, and this is one side to that question I think um, is that civilians in Afghanistan themselves for one when they or their families are engaged with the industry uh, become addicted to the substances and um, and there was one case I, I heard about recently as well, where um, a mother was uh, in the opium poppy industry and then her son uh, passed from an overdose on heroin and she still had to engage with the industry afterwards uh, because really the people are dependent uh, on those industries. Um, and one thing with addiction in Afghanistan, I, I, I'm sure this is in other places as well, but something that was visible is that there's really... Um, an increase of double addiction because of misinformation as well um because so so civilians who are addicted to heroin hear from from hearsay that someone else tells them okay um if you if you use methamphetamine well then you will stop being addicted to heroin but it results in uh disastrous consequences of, of people being uh double addicted and um really in in bad situations so and then uh, beyond the country, I would say that um, addiction within Afghanistan, I, I think this is more from an ideological perspective as well, is that uh, within Afghanistan, when when civilians uh, become addicted, that that perspective uh, does not necessarily coincide with an ideology uh, of Taliban. 
for instance, but uh, research indicates or or at least uh, public media outlets often write um, that beyond the country, that um, addiction is also a method uh, to weaken other states and to weaken the the Western um, not so accepted society uh, from a from an ideological perspective. Um, yeah, I hope that that answers that question. Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, I think uh, for Celine, it'd be interesting to consider that as well, I think, because obviously you spoke about, or both of you have spoken about sort of the global dimensions of drug trade and uh, both Afghanistan and Myanmar kind of turning into these, to these massive hubs that deliver or supply to the rest of the world. Um, but obviously, drug trade and drug consumption also has a very distinct regional dimension, a very distinct national and local dimension. So, Celine, um, have you found anything in terms of how um, drug consumption in particular uh, impacts communities within Myanmar? Because, for instance, um, because for instance, I'm aware that drug consumption um, in other parts of Southeast Asia, I think especially in uh, Thailand, has become a big social question in terms of how to deal with addicts and how to deal with consumption as a kind of economic phenomenon. Do you have anything on that? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot. I mean, the region is now flooded with cheap methamphetamine and it is consumed by people, of course. Um, what I think is a really interesting dynamic within Myanmar is that there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that opium farmers are now partly paid in methamphetamine, which further implicates them in the trade and, of course, also leads to more addiction because people will use it. And I think that is a very concerning trend. Um, also looking at Yaba, so the mixture of methamphetamine with caffeine in very cheap tablets that are especially prevalent in Thailand, I believe. And also considering that they are extremely cheap. So while opium needs to be cultivated, it's an agricultural product, methamphetamine is has unlimited production cycles. There are high profit margins. It's very easy to distribute. If it gets destroyed, you can easily replace it. So I think we should all be really concerned about the flooding of the region with cheap, very cheap, very potent drugs. And that will of course probably also lead to a spike in addiction because people will pop a pill to take on an extra shift. And that's just how the industry now works. Um, beyond the country, yeah, I think that's a phenomenon that we will see in the whole of Southeast Asia. So this is really not something that happens within borders as we saw, but this is really something that goes beyond borders. Um, I think tying into that, um, what do what do either of you think um, the impact of this trait on on national and regional stability uh, is? Because I mean, from an outsider's perspective, very much looks like the prevalence of the drug trade and the expansion of the drug trade um, gives gives more power to non-state actors. It gives more power as well in the case of Myanmar to corrupt state authorities. Um, that are actively involved in this trade. Um, so what do you think the prospects are for 
for instance, especially I think in Myanmar, um, with the presence of so many different ethnic groups um, in terms of um, managing and sustaining kind of a, uh, a more general peace within the country rather than this ceasefire capitalism that you've described. I mean, the state is basically, also because of the sanctions, the state really needs the black economies, not only the narcotics economy, but also other, other economies uh, connected to resource exploitation, like the jade trade, uh, gold trade, mainly with China. Um, so I think the state is now really dependent on the narcotics industry that amounts, I think, to an um, an amount that is, of course, hard to estimate, but around 30 billion US dollar. Uh, so that is such a huge number for a, a country like Myanmar. And of course, the state is now really tapering into these economies. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think I think so. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good pathway to another question that um, I think maybe um, Lisa's more um, apt to deal with. Um, so the question is, what are the tactical, political dimensions of gaining control through drug involvement by the Taliban in Afghanistan? Um, so um, especially the extent to which the Taliban are involved in in the Afghan drug trade. Um, Lisa, what do you think the implications for that are for their governance capacity, especially considering the um, extent of sanctions and it looking like these sanctions are not about to, um, but not, not about to be lifted anytime soon, really. Um, do you have any, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yes, one thing I wanted to, to quickly add, um, which to the question before is uh, that for Afghanistan, well, for one, um, the situation is really dire, but as well, um, you have a state of kind of being torn between involvement in the industry, um, but also from, from a Taliban government saying that drugs are bad. And, and also, um, if, if people remember that in the last couple of months in the media, there was a lot of talk about, uh, will the illicit drugs industry, will it be curtailed again? Will it be halted? Um, will there be a stop of production and, and harvesting and things like that? So really um, the industry itself is torn between continuing and increasing um, versus from an ideological perspective that addiction is bad. And, and what we saw, I think last month as well, was uh, that or, or public media indicated that um, addicts were, were brought to sort of rehabilitation uh, camps as well. So it was, there's always that nexus of, um, that the illicit drugs industry itself is bad, but, but that people profit from it. So I think um, that was just important to add, but I also think uh, that that ties into an extent to that question. And let me just quickly read it again. Yes, um, so um, there, there are, of course, a lot of dimensions um, for drug involvement by uh, actors, by crime groups, by the Taliban. Um, and those are really... Uh, Unexhaustive, I would say. Um, I think anyone uh, who who involves themselves um, from a 
from a revenue increasing basis or from a exploitative basis um, really really also has different um, incentives to do so. So um, political dimensions are, for example, um, and something I found really interesting that um, because of the rural actualities in Afghanistan, you have local commanders in, in communities um, that are aligned with the Taliban and um, those also, as I indicated earlier, with the payments um, are involved uh, often, as research indicates, uh, in the drugs industry. And that, that also having that alliance and that compliance, um, there is a correlation that that might have benefited a rapid, more rapid takeover uh, in the summer, um, which, which really highlights the political dimensions of of gaining control in in the drug um, industry through the drug industry, really, and then um, with those local commanders, and but also being involved in an industry like uh, the illicit drugs industry, like the methamphetamine industry, provides for an underlying structure in general um, and facilitates also those coordination efforts and really, really, as I said. Um, provides for that structure, which I think is um, important to highlight on a regional, on a statewide, but also on a very local basis. Um, and that connectedness, um, yes, uh, helps with gaining control. Um, and, and to what you just said earlier in your question as well, um, oh, okay, there's things highlighting, um, was that the extension of Taliban involvement, um, I find that very difficult to answer because it really, it's very hard to estimate. Um, what research indicates is that at, at most points of the process of the trafficking um, of the revenue streams, that there is some nexus uh, between Taliban involvement and the illicit drugs industry. Um, and that it could provide, as I said, for, for such an underlying structure um, for governance, for, for control. Um, yeah, I hope that answers uh, that question and also the points that Aaron made. I think um, I think an interesting pathway to that, just because you spoke about the, the local, um, the national, as well as the kind of broader regional dimensions is that both of you spoke about those dimensions and said that, you know, this is not, a, this is not an isolated issue. This doesn't happen in a vacuum and the implications of that reach beyond, beyond the immediate geography of that region. Um, and both of you have emphasized the need for kind of the humanitarian responses to a, what ultimately is a humanitarian consumption issue as well as a production issue. Um, but the, from what it seems like to me, based on both of your presentations, was that um, the issue is inherently also an economic one, the lack of economic development, the lack of economic opportunities, both in Afghanistan as well as in Myanmar, um, especially since the military government there. So, um, in the long run, these these economic issues would presumably need a resolution as well that would replace drug consumption, drug production as kind of a as a viable revenue resource. Um, so I was wondering whether either of you had any ideas as to how policymakers in both of these countries could actually achieve that if they if they so wanted. I think in the case of Myanmar, that's not something that the military is now mainly concerned with. Because of course, both Afghanistan and Myanmar really experience crisis right now. So, and I think drug policy reform is something that is inherently a global issue just because drugs don't respect borders. 
so I think because the, the military in Myanmar is right now not concerned with finding better drug policies because they depend on it. They, they need the money. Uh, I think other states need to work on their drug policies because I think we all know that drug policy has failed, the war on drugs has failed. And while there's not that much to do now about Myanmar directly, I think this both Afghanistan and Myanmar now give us an entry point to again think about how we deal with drug policy globally because the drugs might be consumed, uh, produced in Afghanistan and Myanmar, but they are consumed all around the world. So it's a global, a global net. And I think it's important to always highlight that because it's easy to speak about a problem in a different region that is far away from Europe, but the drugs are consumed here as well. And it's a global network uh, that is difficult to track and, but ultimately uh, that harms people. Uh, so I think this is something that we can stress right now and what also should be one of the main points we should take from our session. Yes, uh, would you mind if I add to that, Aaron? Okay. Um, I think uh, what Celine said just now about the, the global impact as well is something um, that is, is very important um, and that at the same time is quite sad that only with that global impact um, we attend more to the issue itself. Um, and I, I, in, in reports, um, European reports, for example, that was very visible that uh, with, with a growing attention though marginal uh, to the methamphetamine industry and to the spillover to Europe um, and especially the Balkans, there was more of a call for um, curtailing the drug industry itself, whereas um, that before was was not that highlighted. Um, so, so I think, yes, um, it is good that there is more attention to it now and that we, we have a possibility to rethink our policies and how um, how the topic is attempted to be resolved, but at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that um, that is partially because it now affects um, the Western society more, and, and that really is um, quite sad, I think. Um, yes, so let me quickly, I wrote some stuff down because you wanted to know um, what policies um, we could change and how. Um, that uh what policies we would we would think of right um yes so um as i mentioned in the conclusion of my presentation i think for afghanistan and i think for that counts for the region um, but also in general it is important to really find or or analyze who uh profits from the funds or the revenue generated um through the drugs industry and what those actors do with that um, received revenue um, and to criminalize um, that in the instances where it, uh, or, or in general as well, but where it really um, affects the civilians and people and um, the, the drug addiction and, and all those kind of thematics. Um, so who, who obtains those funds and what are they used for, I think is um, very important to 
to research further and to to understand and then to to direct policies towards that. I think something that has been attempted in the past um, but failed was to redirect uh, cultivation to legal crops um, in Afghanistan, at least, but also in in other places. And that um, hasn't really been possible. Well, as well, as I mentioned, the the natural landscape does really um, highlight the possibility for engagement in the illicit industry, but also receiving protection. If say if there's a if there are civilians in a, in a rural area in Afghanistan, um, receiving protection and and having that uh, linkage uh, to the drugs industry doesn't necessarily um, not benefit them itself. And also, um, the, what I what I mentioned as well before is that the intricacy of communities that. Um, cousins might be involved uh, with Taliban, that uh, family members might already be involved with the drug industry really makes it very difficult to move away from that um, because of that structure. Um, so yes, I believe um, it is very important to to look further at how the funds are obtained, but also to look at um, what is the situation and what are the actualities and not only look at Okay, how much uh, drug spillover is there to Europe? How much drug spillover is there to to other regions? Um, yeah. Yes, thank you very much, Lisa. It's very very interesting uh, conversation. There's, Can uh, I shortly add something to that? Of course. <laughs> what I think is really interesting are, of course, alternative development approaches that Lisa also mentioned in Myanmar. That was also tried for a longer period now to replace opium poppy with other crops. But oftentimes that has not been successfully implemented, at least not fully, because opium remains more profitable. So again, we come back to this as a, a deeply economic issue. There's a demand for drugs. There's an easy way to supply it. So making drugs should not make you more money than for example planting coffee but that is that is just a really really difficult process but i think alternative development approaches are really really important and really interesting and i think they can be successful but it's just a very difficult process and something that is very difficult to implement if you don't have the state framework that is able to provide these opportunities for for local farmers that don't care whether they produce opium or something else, they just need to make money to feed their families. They just want to have a sustainable livelihood. So that's something that I think can really make a difference, but it's so difficult to implement. Thank you very much, Celine. Um, we have one more question that I think uh, aims at uh, Lisa's presentation as well. Um, with the increased power of the Taliban and increased uh, ATS, uh, I guess, presence, uh, many local civilians have turned to amphetamine production. How would changes in policies fighting narco-terrorism affect the local people? Uh, what are your suggestions to deter locals from turning to production? I guess it ties into uh, ties into the conversation that we were just having, but um, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit more. Oh uh, Yes, yeah, I think partly that um, I have, or I hope I have already answered to an extent, um, my suggestions to deter locals from turning to production, um, obviously, uh, 
is is very difficult to uh, suggest such a thing. I believe that um, there has been a lot of talk about um, whether to provide financial aid to Afghanistan currently, um, and that that because of the very dire economic situation that the humanitarian situation is really disastrous and that people are, um, as I indicated earlier, really, really moving to other means, um, which which in- shows um, through an increased uh, engagement with the illicit drugs industry. And um, I, I do believe that um, an attempt or that talking about aid and assistance um, for um organizations and that having you know more of an idea where um those funds would go to and and actually trying to assist um local communities and people uh to move away from the drugs industry in theory would be um a, a reasonable and a hopefully helpful attempt um however i do believe that in practice that is very difficult to to exercise, and I think that is also why um, the world has struggled to, to an extent, why the world has struggled to uh, provide assistance to the people of Afghanistan, and um, which would, in turn, help and and enable really those people to move away uh, from the production. Um, I hope that answers that question. Yes, thank you very much. Um, that was that was kind of the last uh, questions we had. So if any of the participants have any more questions, please do ask. I was um, personally was wondering about one kind of, I guess, more more sort of conceptual point, um, because in her presentation, Celine uh, spoke about the um, crime conflict nexus. And obviously the, the name of this panel was uh, concerned with the crime terror nexus in uh, South Asia. So I was wondering both of you really whether you thought or whether you think or whether you thought that um this idea of the crime terror nexus is a useful conceptual framework simply because obviously terror is a very terror is a very loaded word in terms of who's a terrorist and you know what terrorists do um so do you feel like it is a useful framework or would it make more sense to maybe talk about a crime conflict nexus or crime militancy nexus um what is your what was your opinion on this on like a yeah from a conceptual perspective so to speak uh all right uh, i think it's it definitely is a useful framework to think about certain dynamics and whether you call it crime terror crime insurgent i think the the trajectories are the same. So what I think Makarenko has attempted to describe is a nexus between organized crime that can fuel war. But also, as I said in my presentation, that is not necessarily the case. So what I tried to also not criticize, but mention and highlight is that uh, the United War State Army, for example, was an example for how the drug economy could be used also to lead to a decrease in violence, to to achieve peace. Um, So I think crime terror is a bit, I didn't feel comfortable saying that in the case of Myanmar because terror is, as you said, such a loaded word. So I felt more comfortable using these broader terms of crime conflict because that's 
what it really is. It's crime and conflict that are somehow connected in different cases, uh, whether you want to specify that further and say this is a terrorist organization. Doesn't the word terror often doesn't necessarily help because it automatically makes the discussion so loaded. For example, the, the name of our panel, narco-terrorism, that is such a loaded concept. And I think we could also talk about that for an hour, like whether th that is actually a good term, but it certainly gets attention like the drug economy does and like drug kingpins do. And that's also something that I found very interesting is that this myth of drug kingpins at the top of this hierarchy are the ones that really are responsible for for the drug problem but actually it's just a very global network that is prevalent everywhere and that we've been fighting for such a long time so yeah i think it it is a really helpful framework but it definitely it's always good to have some nuance to that yes um my thank you for that uh, answer, Celine. I think you you already said most of the points that I also wanted to make. Um, I, I I agree that having a framework, be or the be it the one or the other, um, always helps in conceptualizing, and that it doesn't necessarily mean that um, one is better than the other, but uh, that you can can look from different angles. Um, but I think also the point that Celine made, um, what our panel is called, but also um, how the media presents the illicit drug industry in South Asia currently, um, but also in, in the past years, uh, really, really skews that picture we have and that um, is made of it itself and kind of neglects um, the humanitarian side that Celine and I spoke about a lot. And that results in those drastic policies in airstrikes that don't um, benefit the people or benefit or well, not benefit, but that really, um, really hurt um, and, and pull more into poverty those local uh, communities and don't actually benefit in the way that they are not able to curtail the drugs industry um, but that that the terminology and that how how the story is narrated um, really biases um, the actualities and that it is I, I think it is um, very important to keep that in mind and to actually um, have in mind that yes we named it narco-terrorism but really um, it is about people who don't have have other possibilities who engage with the industry, people who are addicted because they're misinformed. Um, and to to really, when reading news now or when um, when researching the topic further, to to attend to that thematic as well, um, rather than only the the global consequences or the crime or terror nexus itself, um, because it all ties in together, and that neglecting one perspective. Um, at the end of the day, as we have seen results in um, further um, negative consequences for the people themselves. Okay, thank you very much, both of you. Um, there's a, another question we got to the conversation that two of you have just been having. Um, uh, the question is, in some debates, terrorism could be classified as organized crime. In your opinion, is there a difference between narco-terrorism and organized crime drug networks? And if there's a difference, is there a connection? Do either of you have any thoughts on that? 
Do you mind repeating that? I'm sorry. <laughs> in some debates, terrorism could be classified as organized crime. In your opinion, is there a difference between narco-terrorism and organized crime drug networks? And if there's a difference, is there a connection between the two? Um, I can attempt to answer that if, if you'd like. Um, I think something we need to keep in mind is that there's often a connection between terror and crime. Um, for example, in the topic of South Asia, you have uh, Taliban who, who are somewhat connected with the Haqqani network. You have um, different crime groups uh, who work together, who who inevitably have to um, coincide in those thematics. So um, for one, I would say, yes, there is uh, a connection, not necessarily, but um, there is a possibility. Um, however, I do think uh, the term terrorism itself, uh, to use it when looking at uh, the illicit drugs industry, or when looking at organized crime just because it is an illegal um, industry itself uh, is very, as we've discussed before as well, is very loaded and uh, not necessarily um, adequate, I would say. Um, but I do, I, I do believe that um, we shouldn't forget that there, there, there are possible connections um, and that just because now we, we've reiterated that humanitarian side um, that doesn't mean that the illicit drugs industry or that organized crime or, or that the connection to terrorism um, is something that that is okay um, at the end of the day. I just found the question. So sorry, you had to repeat that. Um, I think we always want to have these clear cut concepts. We want to have organized crime and we want to have terrorism and we want to have like clear, clear separating lines. But I, I just think the more you look into it, the, the more I at least got the feeling that there is no clear separation between all of this. It all goes together. Like we saw in our talk now, it's not, it's not only an economic issue. It's not only a social issue. It's not only an issue of illicit economies or terrorism or insurgent groups, but everything is just connected. But that's sometimes really hard to accept because it makes stuff more difficult. It's more difficult to have a nuanced opinion on something rather than saying this is narco-terrorism. And that's why I think it's good to have these concepts, but to also not stick to them too much all the time because it really makes issues under complex that are just really complex. It's the situation of the whole drug economy globally is so difficult. So we always try to, to find a concept that just describes it all. And I think there is just none. Yeah, but it's a really good question. I also wonder that. <laughs> It is a good question. Um, there's another there's another question that kind of ties into these, I guess, conceptual distinctions. Uh, so the question is, since, since much research shows that there's a crime conflict uh, nexus and terrorism is bonded with drug trafficking, how is this addressed in the countries that don't accept the notion of terrorism since there is not a definition for it? Especially in a country that uh, where religion plays a giant role in the, in the interpretation of terrorism. Uh, do you think that the involvement of uh, abusive authorities and economic instabilities are the main 
driving factors of these nexuses. So I guess the main question is where do these where do these nexuses come from? Do they have a root cause, or is it, I guess, more complex and more multifaceted than abuse of authorities that decide that this becomes a nexus? I think I can just just repeat what I said because. Yeah, what is a nexus? <laughs> Everything is connected. So I think it's always easier to look at a specific context and go as small as possible because there are always different dynamics. And yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question, but I don't think I have a, a satisfying answer to it because it's just where where does it start where does the nexus start does it start with drugs does it start with a, a political goal an ideology uh, and i think it's the notion that terrorism as well as organized crime are just strategies that are used by different groups that maybe don't have this one fixed goal but maybe a goal that even changes over time um, it doesn't necessarily have to but maybe the economic game gains like shift the focus of the group but maybe they don't so uh, i think it depends <laughs> yes i think uh, the answer celine gave uh, before that and, and this one as well uh, really show that putting something in a box is very difficult um especially in, in where there are endless connections and endless thematics the one thing in this question um, I thought maybe I can I can give a little pointer um, in a country that religion plays a giant role on this. Um, something that I found during my research was that um, the fact that it is a conflict zone, the fact that there is uh, economic instability and in that um, Afghanistan itself, uh, but, but also other uh, states in South Asia are, are seen as conflict zones um, for ideological perspectives um this having a conflict zone um provides say so to say um that the ends justify the means so the fact that there is a conflict zone um while while yes islamic law doesn't prohibit drug crimes explicitly um but uh, liquor crimes but at the same time um yes we know that it is not very much accepted uh, from a ideological perspective either um, but that the fact that you have a conflict zone um, does justify the means and the, the generation of profit through that um, to work towards those ends um, and to, to promote the ideology itself. So I, maybe that um, gives another, another view on that topic itself. Okay, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, very interesting, uh, very interesting conversation. I think looking at these, uh, these conceptual issues, although they might seem a little bit abstract to begin with, I think are very, as both of you indicated, have very clear policy implications in terms of how states and how authorities deal uh, with, not just with these countries, but also with communities in these countries. So I think it's, um, I think it's worth considering, um, yeah, what the implications of that are and how these conceptual frameworks really shape shape the way we conceptualize and uh, politically approach um, drug producers, drug consumers, um, as well as countries in which drug production and drug consumption is very, uh, is very prevalent. Um, 
as far as I'm aware, we don't have any other questions. So I would um, would suggest maybe wrapping up here. Thank you um, to both of you for very, very interesting conversations, uh, very interesting presentations as well. Thank you to um, everyone that attended this, uh, wherever you might be. Um, hopefully it's not 5 a.m. for you. And um, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you to everyone that's organized this and that's made that possible. Um, yeah, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.